Well, good morning. And so we begin our study of the book of Isaiah. I've already given uh, a couple of weeks of uh, introduction to the book, and those, uh, if you missed that, that's online, and you can pick up a little bit about who Isaiah was and the times in which he was living in. But this morning, we want to get into, into the text. And I want to begin, actually, at inviting you to turn to chapter 6, which is the commissioning of Isaiah the prophet. We've looked at this before. It's a famous passage. Isaiah chapter 6, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And if you go down to verse 6, one of those seraphim flew to me, said Isaiah. He had a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this uh, has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. And then, verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And that's the formal commissioning of Isaiah as a spokesperson, as the mouthpiece of God. And over the next 60 years, the remainder of his life, almost six decades, Isaiah was that mouthpiece of God. He spoke faithfully the, the Word of God, communicated the heart of God to God's people. It's deep with um, theological truth and insights into the character and the plan of God for the ages. And it's no wonder that Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament behind the book of Psalms. This is a rich, rich book. But notice this commissioning of Isaiah is in chapter 6. Why not the opening of the book? I mean, that's where you would think you would begin, the beginning of the commissioning, the call, and then the rest of the book follows. There are five chapters that precede the call of Isaiah. Why is that? Well, like typically most books, there's a preface. And the first five chapters are actually a preface to the rest of the book. They set up the reason why God called for 60 years the prophet Isaiah to be his spokesman. They explain and they set the overarching reasons and the, the heartbeat of the book itself. This is why Isaiah was raised up by God. Five chapters lay that background. And you get to the end of that fifth chapter, as you get into the call of Isaiah, you'll look away and say, my goodness, what a mess. It is just an absolute mess. My God in heaven, what are you going to do about it? What's your plan? And boom, chapter 6, he raises up a voice, a spokesperson, God has something to say. The first five chapters lay out the reasons why God has spoken. If there ever was a time for God to be heard, that was the time. Isaiah was the man. Now, the first chapter is really a, I think it's an introduction to the preface. It lays out a formal charge. This is, chapter one is written in the form of like a, like a legal notice, a legal, a lawsuit in the Old Testament literature. This has the, the makings of what is called a, a formal lawsuit that God is bringing. 
And we have to understand it as that way. The people of God have violated the covenant, the law. And Almighty God, the Holy One of Israel, is now standing up and he's saying, you, my people, are being indicted. I'm bringing formal charges against you. And verse 2 begins by saying, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Isaiah had read his Old Testament. He knew the book of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the, the law of God. In the book of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, we read something like this in chapter 4. When you become the father of children and children's children and remain long in the land and then act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, when you do that, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you're going over to Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long in it, you shall be utterly destroyed. I am calling heaven and earth to witness against you. Or Deuteronomy chapter 30, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessed and cursed, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Or chapter 31, verse 28, assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to witness against them. God is bringing now formal charges. The Old Testament law, he had said, I'm going to call heaven and earth as witnesses. Here is my direction. Here is our covenantal code, the law. Deuteronomy 28, if you obey the law, all these blessings will come upon you. If you disobey this law, if you break covenant with me, all these cursings will come. That's Deuteronomy 28. I call heaven and earth to witness against you. And of course, the people of Israel back then said, okay, fine with, fine with me. Everything you've written, we will do. And now centuries later, the patience of God has been tried and tried and tried. His grace has been poured out over and over and over again. And now at the end of the 8th century B.C., God says, enough. And he stands up in a formal lawsuit in the court of, of the divine law, and he says, I call heaven and earth. I'm bringing it back, just like in the days of Moses of Deuteronomy. Heaven and earth to witness against you. I am bringing formal charges. What are those charges? Well, verse 2, the, the sin of, of rebellion. Listen, sons, I have reared and brought up. You have revolted against me. My own children have revolted against me. Now, again, that harkens back to the book of law, the Deuteronomy 21, verse 18, when a rebellious son is found to be um, a drunkard, a, 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 a rebellious, um, hard-hearted son, they take him before the elders in the gate of the city, and then they, they stone him to death. You're my son, he says. I've reared you, I've brought you up, and you've revolted against me. God is saying, I'm appealing to the law, to my law, my character. You have rebelled. It's time for judgment. 
An ox knows its master, a donkey its master's manger. Israel, you don't know. You don't know me. My people do not understand. A, a dumb ox, a stupid donkey knows enough to follow its master. And you, he said, you my people, my, my children I've raised. You don't know. The, the word means you've lost that the intimacy, intimacy, that intimate awareness, that knowledge that, that we had. You, you, you've lost all discernment is the next word. You have forgotten me. What should be natural for God's children, what should be second nature in terms of a heart and intimacy for God, they are ignorant. They, they are like a dumb ox. They're worse than a dumb ox. <laughs> They're worse than a stupid donkey who follow their master. And then he gives this whole catalog of, of sins, these charges. There's seven of them in verse 4. The number of wholeness, of completeness, seven, that number of perfection. Isaiah is saying, your sins are complete. Sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons, again, who act corruptly. The word is, you're, you, you've been putrefied. There's a rottenness to you. They've abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from him. And then he uses this analogy of a, of a beaten and bloodied body. Verse 5, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of your foot even to the head, there's nothing sound in it, only bruises and welts and raw wounds, not pressed uh, with bandages or softened with oil. You're just a a beaten, bloodied mess because of your sins, because of your neck. I can't, even, I can't even recognize you. Your land, verse 7, is desolate. The cities are burned, your fields. Strangers are devouring them in your presence. And I don't know for sure the specific or the historical setting. Isaiah doesn't tell us. This is a preface. This is the general overarching introduction. But he's referring to a time, and there was multiple times in Isaiah's 60 years of a prophet where a foreign invaders had come, and more particularly, and we'll get to that later in our study, the Assyrians came. King Sennacherib came, and he destroyed, he was burning the towns, the villages all around in Judea, all around in Judah, all around the city of Jerusalem. He couldn't penetrate the walls of Jerusalem. And maybe Isaiah is referring to that. Look around. He said, look around. You're, you're, you're like a, a beaten up body. You're, you're, you're being burned. Your fields are destroyed. There's desolation. Verse 8, the daughter of Zion, that's Jerusalem, is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field. Everything else is just mowed down, and there's just a little hut standing. That was the city of Jerusalem. And then he gives us, I think it's a little glimmer of hope in verse 9 when he says, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we'd be like Sodom and like Gomorrah. Remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham comes to God and says, look, don't destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. If there's 50 righteous, God said, okay, I won't. Well, how about 45? I won't. 
Well, how about 30? If there's 30 righteous, no. God said, if there's 30 righteous, I won't destroy it. How about 20? How about 10? If there's 10 righteous, I won't destroy them. And of course, we know there weren't even 10. And God destroyed and wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah. And God has this little glimmer of hope saying, there is a remnant. God has left us some survivors. Otherwise, we'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. But then interestingly, in verse 10, he picks up on that theme of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he slaps the people of God in the face when he calls them, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of your God, you people of Gomorrah. And so now he's labeling the people of God, Israel, as Sodom and Gomorrah because this is his second now indictment. Here's the second charge that is being brought against the people. The sin of ritualism, of hollow, empty religiosity. Verse 11, what are, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this, this trampling in my courts, this stampeding in my holy halls? I'm sick of it, says God. And again, this could have been a situation if it was the attack of the Assyrians and all of a sudden the people got religion, you know. Maybe they, they were turning back to God and they were stampeding into the temple, crying out to God. And he says, too late. The time has passed for that. I'm sick of your hollow, worthless worship. Verse 13, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination. The new moon, the Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity. It's not that their worship was just empty and meaningless. It was sinful. It was wicked because their heart wasn't right with God. And now they were pretending, now they were coming with this false sense of, of worship before God. God has no part of it. Verse 14, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. And literally, in fact, I think the King James puts it this way. I hate with all my heart or all my soul, I hate it. To the very fiber of my being, to the very core of who I am as God, I despise it. I hate it. Very strong, very emotional. I'm weary of bearing them. Verse 15, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I'm not going to listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Sit, lift up your hands in prayer all you want, but turn them and look at them. They're full of blood. They're stained with the, with the sacrifices of your children to false gods. They're stained with the blood of... of, of um, of the pain of, of oppressed people that you've ignored who have died at your hands. I will have none of it. Pray all you want. I will not hear. Very, very strong language. Wash your hands or wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean, verse 16, and remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And then again, he picks up, again, this language of, of a lawsuit. Come, verse 18, 
Let, let's settle this dispute. Let's reason together. Let's, let's gather our, our lawyers together, and we'll sit down at the table of mediation. Come, let's reason together. Though your sins are a scarlet, and literally the next word is white they shall be. The word for scarlet and the word for white are put right back up against each other. Same thing in the next phrase. Though they are red like crimson wool, they will be. And he's setting up this contrast. Here you are now. This is your sin. Red like scarlet. Red is crimson. But white they could be. Wool-like they could be. If, verse 19, you consent and obey and you will then eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Turn, repent, and you will eat the best of the land. Continue in your sin, and you will be eaten. Isaiah is masterful with words and the way he puts things together. The sin of empty, worthless ritualism. But there's a third charge, a third indictment, judgment because of the injustices of God's people. How the faithful city has become a harlot, a prostitute. She who was once full of justice and righteousness, once lodged in her, they're now murderers. Look at your hands. Injustice. You've oppressed your own people. Your silver has become dross. The, the purity of silver that you once had, the purity of your life, is, it, it's now it's worthless. It's full of dross. Your, your wine, the pureness of your wine, it's now diluted with water. It, Metaphors of their sinful, rebellious life. Your rulers, verse 23, are rebels and companions of thieves. And everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards to the detriment, to the detriment of the least of these. They don't defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. They are marked by self-gratification, self-serving, self-centeredness, self-fulfillment. And the most vulnerable of their society, the widows and the orphans, are just despised and ignored. Therefore, verse 24, and this is still part of that indictment against injustice, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, and there's three names of God that he in rapid-fire succession mentions here, the Lord, and then the next word is Jehovah, the Lord Jehovah of hosts. It's an interesting title. Not sure exactly what it means. Um, many people feel it means it, it has a sense of a warrior uh, connotation to it. The Lord, some translate it, the God of armies, the Lord of armies. It's as if God pulls his sword, and he's lifting it up, and he says, I am Jehovah, the Lord of hosts. I'm in the commander of all, and I am the, the mighty one of Israel. Back in chapter verse 4, it was, I am the holy one of Israel. And then my translation, maybe yours, begins, it says, 
ah. Because in the Hebrew language, there's, a, there's a, almost a sense of a groaning that takes place here. Thus says the Lord Jehovah of hosts, the Holy One. Here's what God says. Ah! That's the, that's the sense that I think we are to get from the text. He says, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes and I will turn my hand, verse 25, against you. In all this pain of the, of the mighty God, he just cringes and groans. Ah! And then his eyes of fire look up. This, I'm, this is the Mark Carey kind of translation, but his eyes of fire look up and he says, I will be relieved. I will be avenged. I've had it, and I'm coming after you. And will smelt away the dross as with lye, and will remove all your alloy. And then there's this little glimmer of hope again. And then I will restore your judges at it first and your counselors at the beginning. And after that, you will be called the city of righteousness and a faithful city. This is what is called an inclusio. That paragraph, verse 21, started with referring back to Judah as, as righteousness, as the faithful city that had turned a harlot, that had walked away from God. But he says, one day you will once again be called righteous and a faithful city. A little glimmer of hope amongst the three damning indictments against the children of God, my sons. And finally, starting in verse 27, is the, the formal sentencing that takes place. Though Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness, yet transgressors, verse 28, and sinners will be crushed together. And those who forsake the Lord, Jehovah, shall come to an end. Verse 29, surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which, which you have desired, and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. And those phrases, the oaks and the gardens, those are references to pagan worship practices. In verse 30, you will be like an oak. You have worshipped those oaks Psalm 115, I think it is, those who worship them will become like them. And he says in verse 30, you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away or as a garden that has no water. The strong men will become tender, his work also a spark, and they shall both burn together and there will be none to quench them. Close the book. Pound the gavel court is over. There's, in this chapter one, an interesting juxtaposition of, of the judgment and yet these little glimmers of hope. Judgment and yet hope. Though future redemption is assured, judgment must first come. This is the theme of Isaiah. 
This is why chapter 1 serves as a great introduction to the whole book. Because all throughout the book of Isaiah, we'll see this judgment, this comfort. Chapters 1 through 39, judgment. Chapters 40 through 66, the comfort of God, the salvation of God. 1 through 39 is condemnation. 40 through 66, consolation, comfort, comfort my people. 1 through 39 is man's need for salvation. And 40 through 66 shows God's provision of salvation. A rich book that focuses ultimately, as we'll see, on a coming deliverer, on a one who will take the judgment upon himself, who will die in the place of sinners, who will be resurrected to newness of life, and who will come and reign supreme on this earth in such a way that everything that was just described in chapter 1 won't happen. So what does Isaiah want us to know about God? What can we learn about God? No, but this is stuff written 2,800 years ago. I am the Lord God, and I change not, he says. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here is our God. First of all, and I've added this to notes, he's a God who wants to be known. He's a God who desires to be known. His heart breaks when his people fail to know him. That's the core of the, of the judgment found in verse 3. An ox knows its master, a donkey knows its master, but Israel doesn't know me. What broke the heart of God where judgment comes is because the people forgot their God. You've become ignorant. You have become forgetful. You've lost the intimacy of knowledge of who I am. You've lost your heart for me. Isaiah tells us that God is a God who wants to be known. He's a God who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Moses through the law, through all the centuries of God's people in the Old Testament. Time and time again, he revealed himself, and time and time again, the people said, uh-huh, yeah, and then they did their own thing. And finally, God said, enough. I want to be known, and you're not knowing me. Second of all, God is absolute holiness and does not ignore sin. He may delay sin's judgment, but it'll always come. In verse 4, he identifies himself first and foremost, I am the Holy One of Israel. And Isaiah uses that phrase of God more than any other Old Testament writer. 25 times God is identified in the book of Isaiah as I am the Holy One of Israel. Do you think that Isaiah was impacted by that, that vision in the temple in his commissioning? When the seraphim were there and the, the temple shook and the smoke and the, filled the temple and all of a sudden was shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He never forgot that. Absolute, infinitely pure, separated from all sin is God, the thrice holy God. How presumptuous 
of us? Is it that we think God is no different than a than a overly kind grandfather who will pat his children on the head and say, well, <laughs> boys will be boys. How presumptuous of us to think that we can sin and get away with it. Oh, but, but it was just a, a little lie. Really didn't hurt anything. It was just a little fudging on our income tax. Oh, it was just a, a little peek at that impure thing on the computer. It was just a, a little bit of anger, not much. In fact, I would probably call it righteous. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah is saying, people of God, don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget it. Thirdly, related to His holiness, He is the omnipotent, sovereign God of hosts, the commander of all creation, almighty Jehovah of hosts. He's not only perfectly holy, He's powerfully holy. He's the commander of all. The sin that I committed this week that might have hurt my spouse, the, the angry word to a coworker, the, the ig ignoring of, of a family member, or, or that just that little thought that I nursed and coddled that was less than godlike. It's an affront, first and foremost, to a holy, powerful commander, the Lord of hosts. That's what David was talking about, wasn't it, in Psalm 51? He sins with Bathsheba. He commits adultery, impregnates her, kills her husband Uriah on the battlefield, breaks whatever it is, six, seven of the Ten Commandments, and then has the gall to write in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Come on, David. Look, look at what your life is committed. But he was spot on because in first and foremost, our sin, little or big, is a front to a holy, powerful, righteous God. Fourth, God is a jealous God. He cares that our worship is worthy of Him. He cares that our worship is sincere and comes from a pure heart. Folks, when we assembled this morning as the gathering of the saints of God that come and worship before Him. I don't want this to sound wrong, but in one sense, I didn't care if you came with a good heart or not. I mean, I do, but I don't know. Who, who, who are you back there? I don't know. What about you? You know, church of 2,500 people? I, I don't know. I just, I can't keep up with that. But God does. He does. He cared how we assembled this morning. He was looking at our heart. There's a God in heaven right now who cares how you are worshiping him. 
Verses 11 through 15 make that very clear. And he's emotional about it. I hate, he says, with every fiber of my being as God, as the Holy One of Israel, I hate worship that is unworthy of me. Meaningless, sinful worship. And he will not reciprocate. He will not hear our prayers. God is not fooled by a life that has lived selfishly Monday through Saturday and then shows up on Sunday. A life where we speak tenor Monday through Saturday and then on Sunday speak bass, for we're in the presence of God. Where is that? But God is in his holy mountain, you know. And you did what to your wife this week? You, 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 you looked at what on the computer this week? Next week is, as we mentioned, it's going to be our communion service because the first Sunday in April is Easter, and so we're going to have communion next week. The communion service begins at 12.05 today when we're done here because it should begin the rest of this day and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday as we prepare our hearts for worshiping a holy, omnipotent, powerful God so that when we gather next week for the Lord's table to remember the most significant, most central event in human history, the payment of Christ in our behalf, the shedding of his blood for worthless sinners, for 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has celebrated the Lord's table to remember, to obey the call of God. Do this in remembrance of me. And God would want us to come next Sunday with hearts prepared. And that begins at 12.05 today. He's a jealous God. He wants pure worship. Fifthly, God is a just God. Chapter 1 of Isaiah tells us that he cares that we are people of righteousness and justice in how we treat others. Verse 17 again. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. An acceptable life before God is not one that just comes on an hour on Sunday morning, but is lived throughout the week caring for others. Caring how we treat our fellow man. Caring about the oppressed, the poor, the indigent, the hurting among us. Of moving out into a culture, yes, a worldview, yes, that has nothing and wants nothing to do with God, that is dark and black with sin. And God wants his people to penetrate that culture with mercy and grace, with justice. John Stone Street, a favorite son here of Winchester, is now the president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldviews wrote a book of a little over a year ago called A Practical Guide to Culture. And he mentions in the, towards the end of the book, 
four things that every Christian should understand, four questions that every Christian should ask as we engage a dark culture. His first question, let me just run through these real quickly. He asks, so what good can we as God's people to call to penetrate a darkened world? What good can we celebrate or protect or promote or preserve? Look around in our culture and our society. Is there still something good that we, the people of God, could come alongside and say, yes, I will stand for that. I will fight for that. A volunteer, as some of you are, people who support ABBA, the Crisis Pregnancy Center. This is good. I will stand. I will celebrate this. I will preserve this. Uh, People who volunteer to deliver meals on wheels. That's good. Who donate blood to the Red Cross. That's good. Who volunteer at the hospital. That's good. Is there something that we can celebrate or protect or promote or preserve? Second of all, is there something missing that we can contribute? Is there something missing in our society? A number of years ago, as you know, we looked at our community and we saw a glaring hole, a need for a Bible-teaching Hispanic church. And by God's grace, he allowed Fellowship Bible Church to, to launch that, as we shared with you, Ben, going full-time here on 1st of April. There was something that was needed a focused outreach in the Quarles Elementary School. Little children, elementary kids at Quarles who struggling reading, writing, doing their math, and there's people right here in this audience who volunteer to be tutors to these little children. There was a need. How can we contribute to that need? Our counseling ministry. It's a growing ministry where I think almost half of the of the people that come for counseling through our biblical counseling ministry here at Fellowship come from outside this church, in the community. Is there some evil that we can stop? The sin of abortion, human trafficking, racial bigotry. As God's people, we cannot be silent. God's people rise up and say, this is evil. We fight against that. Israel didn't do that. They trampled on the rights of others. They they stepped on those who were oppressed. And fourthly, Stone Street says, what brokenness is there that we can restore? A jail ministry that brings hope, the hope of the gospel to prisoners? Families who are going through tough times that need to be made whole again, so you you start a home center with resources to help build into the lives of, of families. Walking with someone through life's pains, the, the, the grief of loss, so you become a Stephen minister. Is there some brokenness that we can help restore? These are questions that God's people ask, who care about righteousness and justice in the world. James, the New Testament writer, put it this way, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The most vulnerable, the most helpless. In the Bible times, it was the widows and it was the orphans. And James is saying, pure religion 
takes care of those with the greatest need. An unknown author penned these penetrating words, I was hungry, and you formed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. I was imprisoned, and you crept out quietly to your chapel in the cellar and prayed for my release. I was naked, and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely, and you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God. But I'm still very hungry and very lonely and very cold. This is pure and undefiled religion. Righteousness, justice in a darkened age. Our religion is questionable that the number one reason we exist is to take care of ourselves. Let me mention one final. What, what does Isaiah chapter 1 tell us about God? That he's a God of grace and mercy. That he's a God of second chances and third and fourth and fifth and tenth and over and over and over again the abundant grace of God that in the midst of this lawsuit and indictment against his people, sprinkled throughout is his grace, is hope, consolation, forgiveness, transformation. That's why Isaiah means the salvation the Lord is salvation. The salvation is of the Lord. Let me just mention one more thing. Chapter 1 is a chapter of choices. All throughout this chapter, it's a chapter of choices. Each day we get up and have to make a choice. Are we going to act like the children of God we are? Or are we going to choose to rebel and go our own way? Every morning, as the people of God, we get up and we have to make a choice. Do I choose to worship God in a worthy manner or, or do I choose to, to worship myself and, and simply use religious things to manipulate a God who cannot be manipulated? Will I choose at 12.05 or 12.10 to leave here and really begin the worship service. Or will I've said, check, see you next week, God. It's the choice of will I do good? Will I seek justice? Will I help the helpless? Or will I choose a self-focused life? What's in it for me? Got to look out for the big number one. It's the most important choice that comes our way, and it's maybe a choice that some of you in this room this morning need to make as you do business with a holy, almighty God. And that's the choice of Will I trust his offer of salvation? Or will I choose to try to get to heaven on my own? Will I spurn God and reject his free offer, or will I choose to receive a free gift? And this is ultimately where Isaiah is going, as we'll see in the weeks to come. 
there is a Savior, a Deliverer, who has come, and He wants to be known by you. He wants intimate fellowship with you. He wants obedience, a life of, of blessing for you. And He made it all possible when He died on the cross, and He paid for our sins. He dealt with the issue that was separating us from a holy God for all of eternity, our sin. He stretched out his hands on the cross. He said, I love you. He died for us. He rose again. And he says, I want to give you a free gift of eternal life if you simply believe. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, not become religious, not do all the religious Obey the Ten Commandments, work hard, be a good father, mother, business person. But for all who believe in him, they'll have everlasting life. Is there someone here today? Anybody here in this room who is yet to put your faith in Christ and Christ alone? I want to invite you right now. The God we have just confronted in Isaiah chapter 1, he's a God who loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know him intimately. Will you put your trust in Christ right now? The Lord is salvation. There's no one other. Let's pray. So, Father, grant us your mercy and grace as we travel through this book of Isaiah to help us to know you better, to humble us before your mighty hand, to stir us up by way of reminder to your greatness and awesome majesty, to bring us to our knees in worship and to say, I want to live for you. I want to know you. I want to serve you and serve others. As I travel this little speck of time that I'm living in now. I want it to count for your glory. For you are the Lord of salvation. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.